Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So as an extra special event this week, for International Men's Day, I interviewed the academic and writer Toby Douglas to chat about his much-publicised new book on feminism and to ask him, in the light of International Men's Day, how he thinks men should engage in the feminist movement. It was during this interview that I realised why he's known in many circles as the feminist fuckboy. So it's International Men's Day and I'm delighted to be joined uh-huh, by... Uh-huh. I'm just going to kick off and say I'm delighted to be on the pod because I'm a huge fan, Debron. Uh, Deborah. What's that? My my name's Deborah. Are you sure? I, I swear your email said Debron. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly sure my name's Deborah. I think that's been my name all my life, so. Anyway, I'm delighted to be on your pod, the guilt-free feminist. It's actually called the guilty feminist. Oh no no no! You you shouldn't feel guilty about being a feminist. Feminism nourishes the earth, and between you and me, the work isn't done yet. And I, oh, sorry, my. Tiny earring just got caught in my bamboo headphones, Debron. Yeah, my name's Deborah. Deborah with an A-H. Wow, you're fiery. I love how powerful you are in debate. You're making me nervous, Debron. The feeling's mutual, Toby. Thank you. So uh, I wanted to ask, what inspired you to write your book? And uh-huh, how... uh-huh, uh-huh. That's a wickedly perceptive question. Um, I did a one-year master's in gender. And when I graduated cum laude, I realised that this was the perfect time for me to write the complete history of world feminism. Three weeks later, I'd written the total story from Charles Fourier to John Stoltenberg via William Maloney. Oh, well, I'm glad you've completed feminism, Tony. Thank you once again kindly. So the book is a complete history of feminism, but it is in many ways a personal memoir about how I learned to overcome cultural misogyny, to embrace women of all sizes, from an eight to hecker, twelve, Right. Um, And somehow you've also managed to release a guide for men in the workplace to um, avoid taking up space in online meetings. Mm -hmm. How would you... uh... Excuse me. Excuse me, Debron. Sorry, you were were just just ever so slightly cutting in there. Uh, Must be a problem with the line. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, something that just struck me. It's actually International Men's Day today. I said that which, at the beginning excuse, of the interview. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, Debran. Um, I think your Wi-Fi was down again now. My Wi-Fi's not down. I was explaining to you that you're a throbbing misogynist. How can I be a misogynist when I listen to Bon Iver? I know women can be a more emotional breed, but... We're not fucking border collies! Deborah, you must calm down. Oh, well, sadly, Tolly's Wi-Fi's gone there forever, and that gives me enough time to tell you about Choose Love, an incredible organisation. Hey, I'm back. Sorry, I think you uh, muted me by accident. By the way, I loved doing the part. Dinner sometime? Devran? You seem to have gone. I'm a feminist, but I have long suspected that every International Women's Day, when Richard Herring writes to every single individual who asks sarcastically, when's International Men's Day? That in fact, he has for many years now been uh, hiding a sweatshop of underpaid women to do this for him. <laughs> and they are in his basement. There's no way he could possibly have done all of those on his own. I truly believe he has just basically been eating chocolates while shouting down into the basement. <laughs> Keep going, November 19th. I can see one that you've missed one. You've missed a spot. Have yeah, you ever is... employed anyone, Richard Herring, to do it? I haven't. I don't think people are say I should get bots to do it, but a bot can't distinguish irony. It can't distinguish the people who are joining in with knocking the people who are doing it. Neither it can a woman, be, to be honest. Pe people are doing it sarcastically. So... Uh, you need to do it, and it needs to be a it needs to be a tailored response. You know, and it takes a man to be this funny. That's the thing. No one could be as funny. I couldn't That's have women do it. No, well, maybe a male bot, a female bot, wouldn't have a chance in hell. Have you got an I'm a feminist bot, Richard? I have. Uh, I'm a feminist, but I recently have been rewatching the whole of Star Wars with my children uh, for the first time, and I didn't object to the fact that Jabba the Hutt has enslaved Princess Leia and forced her to wear a metal bikini as much as I should have. <laughs> I mean, I think what he did was was definitely wrong. But, wrong? But I, I didn't look away. <laughs> <laughs> That's famously a thing for men, isn't it? That was in Friends, that men really have a thing for Princess Leia in the gold bikini. I think it's probably just because it's all of our adolescence, so we saw that at a very at a very susceptible time. I mean, she's a beautiful woman, and, a, and also uh, Carrie Fisher, what a, a remarkable... And fantastic woman she was. Mm. Uh, and Princess Leia as well. Princess Leia is so much more than that. So I think mm. it's... A woman's place is uh, in the revolution. Yeah, she escapes as well, so it's good. Grace Petrie, can I just intercept here if you've... Uh, uh, Grace Petrie is with us. Um, and I asked her to be on this episode especially because uh, she's my go-to expert on men. If I have a man... <laughs> if I have a man it's question, I ring, it's I ring Grace said. Petrie and yeah. say... Have, uh, is Princess Leia in the gold bikini such a keen, iconic <laughs> symbol of hotness in the lesbian community? Do you know? Not that I'm aware of, but mm. um, I must confess that I'm not much of a Star Wars fan. I think like where the sci-fi queer overlapping is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think. Yeah. Oh, I know Who? so many people. I, I, it feels like it, this lockdown particular, every lesbian I've ever met is doing a Buffy rewatch at the moment, as oh. am I. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. My, that's my area of expertise, consulted. Great, thank you very much. We will be coming to you throughout the show uh, for uh, as our resident man expert. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, I'm a feminist, but I don't love any woman in the world at the moment as much as I love Steve Kornacki, 
from MSNBC, who is now, because this is coming out on International Men's Day, but we are recording it on November the 6th, and he has now been awake for some days tallying the results of the election. If you're listening to this in the future, which you definitely are, Biden is not yet president-elect where we are. Uh, so we're looking forward to joining you in the future where Biden is president-elect. But at the moment, he's not. And Steve Konaki still hasn't slept. Uh, so I'm all about MSNBC. And I am more about Steve Konaki at the moment than I am about any woman. That's true. <laughs> Uh, okay, I am feminist, but I insist on being in sole charge of the dishwasher and bins, as clearly subconsciously I regard those as male domestic chores. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I do other things as well, but I, I won't let anyone else touch my bins oh. or my dishwasher because a female brain cannot divide rubbish up into... Can I have you come round here? I'd love you to come round and just... just if, you, if you want extra bins and dishwasher duty, just... I would to... love it. To feel a little bit more of that testosterone revving through your body, you could come round here once a week, do my bins, do my dishwasher. Tom's got how no many? How many? Bi well, you've got to do dishwasher. I mean, it's a uh, that's a you've got it's a twenty four hour job. Uh, but um, how many different bins have you got before oh, I commit to this? Okay, there's the recycling. Yeah. There's the non recycling, and then there's the food scraps. So okay, that's not bad. We've got three. What should we have? Well, I've got. I've probably got five. There's a recycling, there's a garden waste, which I'm... Oh, we don't have uh, a garden. There's, there's a food... We don't have much of a garden, but it's still worth it. And um, there's a pay, there's sort of paper as well, so there's an extra one and, a, yeah, and a, just a net bin. But I like every, I like all this. I like emptying all the bins in the house. I like, uh, I like taking the bins out. I like remembering which one it's meant to be this week. I like the pressure of worrying your bin's going to be too full and what you're going to do. I like distributing rubbish around the village like I'm in the Great Escape when I've got too much rubbish and putting it in uh, bins, not other people's bins, but waste paper bins sometimes. that We haven't done that for a long time. That was only I was going to say, it's, it's, that's, that's, I'm sure you're not meant to do that. I'm sure you're meant to keep it in your house. You are, until... but, you know, if they don't give you enough big enough bins, what are you meant to do? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. You really are more of a man than I'd fully appreciate. Thank you. <laughs> that's, as far, that's as far as it goes. It's just I, I can't do anything technical, but I can okay. do... I'm good at the dishwasher as well. And, you know, no one's as good as me. And my mother-in-law sometimes puts things in. She nearly killed me by putting a sharp knife in the wrong way up. And I cut, I cut my wrist on it. Are we into my mother-in-law jokes already? Not my, it's not a joke. It's deadly serious. We so rarely allow men on this podcast. And I've remembered why. <laughs> I wouldn't say she's fat because she's very, very slim. No, that will be edited out. We can't have any fat phobic humour on this okay. podcast or we're over. I'm not having you cancel me. It's, you cancel yourself, mate. It was in air quotes. No, I don't quotes. care. It don't, was quoted. Don't care what was in. Don't care what it was in. It's not going out. Um, I'm a feminist, but when Grace Petrie admitted that when she went on Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, she got offered a snog. I immediately asked if I could go back on because I got offered no tongue at all. <laughs> None, not, not, a, not a tongue in sight. And I feel disappointed by that now because obviously wasn't doing it right. And I looked hot that night as well. I remember I was in a gold sparkly top and I've seen the pictures from that night. I was looking, it was one of the hottest nights of my life, I think, as nights go. It looked like a slightly overdressed Princess Leia to me that night in that gold. <laughs> thank you. Thank gold. you. It's all I wanted to hear. All I wanted to hear. And, uh, but I got offered zero tongue. I've done 350 episodes of it or something and I've had nothing nothing out of it. Not a, not a scrap. But I just think you're not open to it, Richard. We've had this conversation before in yeah. private uh, that you, you, you've you <laughs> closed down your... You've put up a platonic wall. Yeah. When I met you in Edinburgh years ago, 
you had a. Uh, <laughs> 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 you remember that way. You you sort of radiated uh, a flirtation and openness, and you put the platonic wall up. Now you now you're like, no, I'm not open for business. That's that's Maybe. why no one's offering. I'm telling you, yeah. that's It'll all. It'd be it nice is. if that was the reason. <laughs> I think it just, is the reason. I'm 53. It's all. No. Falling apart. No, that's just it's not okay. true. No, okay. lots of people, there's, listen, there are loads, loads of Fist of Fun fans who have grown up with you who would honestly give money to charity. If you're not doing the thing for Refuge this year, you could raise money for Refuge by auctioning yourself off for dates uh, for okay. women who loved Fist of Fun. I'm going to go with that idea. That's a very good idea. And my wife can't even complain about that because it's for such a good cause. I don't think that's how it works. Um, <laughs> all right. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Richard Herring, and our very special guest, Nikesh Shukla, talking about when's International Men's Day? It's November 19th! Yay! That wooing from Nikesh Shukla sounded sarcastic. We do that kind of wooing <laughs> because we usually have a live audience. I think regular podcasters who do it in the studio don't do this, but we do because we are filling in what the audience would normally hear by applauding ourselves. Yes. I, Hello, I, 2020. I, I worried that my kid was just going to go, why are you wooing? And start asking <laughs> questions. And she was going to interrupt the podcast. Yeah, we can't have her asking questions. She already knows too much. <laughs> <laughs> this is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White. With me is Richard Herring, and we're talking about when's International Men's Day. It's November 19th. Hooray. Uh, Richard Herring. Hello. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to quickly introduce who we have in our posse in case they want to heckle, chip in, laugh so you know whose voices they are, Nikesh Shuklas. He's our guest. He's coming on in a bit. Hello, Nikesh. Hello, Deborah. And Grace Petrie. Um, <laughs> now, we've asked Grace Petrie. Uh, she often plays us out at the end, but we get her to join in. When she was with Folky Ben, they were like the hecklers in the Muppets. And now she's like one of the hecklers in the Muppets and the other ones died. It's sad. Fergie Ben has just become this this folklore character. Fergie Ben was my, my housemate the first lockdown, first time around. And now I'm now I'm alone. Well, I'm not alone, actually. My girlfriend's here, but she's, she's, just, she's neglected to come and heckle. <laughs> this episode is it's in honour of Richard Herring and um, inspired by Richard Herring because, Richard Herring, you famously... Really, I suppose, took the torch because every International Women's Day, the most commonly asked question on Twitter is? When's International Men's Day? And it's the, it's the day it's most often asked as well, yeah. Yeah, no one asks it any other day. What, what, no. what, and what tone is it asked in? Well, it's asked in the tone of they would never, you know, this is an hilarious, sarcastic joke because there would never be an International Men's Day and it's political correctness gone mad. And I suppose there's International Men's Day, everything would go insane. But, you know, as I pointed out on the first one, nine, ten years ago, uh, there is an International Men's Day. It's November the 19th. So I, I sort of took it upon myself. And I, I get sort of into little obsessions and challenges. And I just thought, It'll be. I thought it, I did it one year and it was kind of fun. I thought I'll try and get every single person who asked that question and then just let them know the answer because they're sort of asking something. So let's. Hit, they can't be bothered to use Google. They obviously think there isn't an International Men's Day. So I let them all know. Uh, but and I thought then we can end this. But I did it for nine <laughs> consecutive years. And if anything, it's got, probably got worse. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like you were winning. 
winning. I felt like you were winning, but you I think, think there might have been a point, and then I just I think actually I mean we talk, I talk about this in the book that I've written about it, but I think you know when when I started it, it was sort of quite funny, and it was almost a more niche thing, and then the stupid people have taken over the world basically. So I think certainly in America, it's when America wakes up, it becomes a lot lot worse. Um, mm. And I talk about it in the book it being like it's a light-hearted thing. It's a it's a mildly serious topic, of course, in that people are devaluing International Women's Day and not realising there is International Men's Day. But I think it's the soft drug that le- led to us getting to the point where people are seriously asking why don't all lives matter and when's White History Month? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, it was there was something there, and it, it has grown into something else that is. Uh, you know, less charming and, and less... It, uh, to begin with, it was about laughing at people being stupid, you know, just basically being stupid enough to think they were making a brilliant point without just checking first, you know. So it was... It was and the joke was as much on me because I was sort of forcing myself to respond to them all in this kind of King Canute impossible challenge. And then it's, you know, I, th- I feel like in the last few years I've been doing it, there's a bit more darkness in the, wow. in the periphery of it. Both sides, actually. I mean, it was, it was, and I talk about this in the book as well. It was, you know, say I annoyed both extreme feminists and extreme meninists who both felt I was devaluing their own days. Uh, and I have some, <laughs> I, I have some sympathy with both of them, but I think most people kind of got what the joke was and, and, and understood that it, the joke was on me a lot of the time, but also that it was, it was good to kind of try and corral off this section of the social media so everyone else could get on with celebrating International Women's Day. But uh... Yeah, I've always felt that the good point that you were making was you don't think to ask when your day is or do anything for it. Uh, yeah. And you don't know when it is. And that's because really all the other days are yours. You have so much representation, both in rooms of influence and power and on every screen you look at and, you know, and the history of the world. So the reason you're asking the question on the one day that women get, and to be fair, International Women's Day is really a week now. Uh, I know that because I'm asked to do so many activities for it. And listen, I don't know how you cope with having all the other days, Richard Herring, because <laughs> it's a lot. I find International Women's Day exhausting. I mean, presumably every morning as a man, you have to get up and go to a brunch where you explain what it's like to be a man and uh, you have to talk to other men about how you can better support them. Yeah. It's very rigorous, uh, my International Women's Day week. Yeah. So, you know, I don't really think I'd want to be a full-time man, if I'm honest with you. It seems like a lot of responsibility. It's a good point, but I think really, I mean, having written the book, I was always quite dismissive of the need for an International Men's Day as we started, and I thought it was like having an International Slave Owners Day. There's a reason we don't have that. (laughs) But I think actually, and it's something I did, I guess, in my book Talking Cock as well, is the realisation that men don't really talk about the important things. When you actually look at what International Men's Day is and what it's meant to be celebrating... It's not that bad, and I think men could do with it. So I'm, I, I'm going to dedicate my focus from now on into trying to get men interested in International Men's Day. But yeah, absolutely. When you tell them, in fact, one year I did a scheduled tweet to all the men who'd asked it on March the 8th so that it would come on November the 19th saying, it's today, what are you doing? You know, you were so worried about it. <laughs> That's funny. And, and uh, nobody was doing anything, obviously. So even though when they, they don't want to know, <laughs> no one asking that question seriously wanted to do anything about it. They didn't want to have an afternoon meeting at their work talking about what it is to be a man. Yeah. But I think actually, if I'm honest, Richard, I think men should maybe talk about the redefinition of masculinity a bit yeah, more. Yeah, they because do need to. what it is to be a man is changing. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's tough. I am sympathetic with it because if you've been raised to think you've got to, you know, be brave and not cry and take responsibility and shoot for the stars and all of those things. And then suddenly halfway through your life, people say all of that's wrong and you're not making enough room for other people and you're not. And, and actually, you've got to show your emotions, but you've not been trained to do that. I think that is quite a challenge. And I think we do need to men, it's not my job to do it, uh, no. I, I'm busy, but I think men <laughs> need to make space with and for other men to have these conversations about the changing nature of masculinity and the changing expectations and projections on men. And I think that conversation needs to be held and had. Yeah, well, that's what, I think that's where the book went and I didn't know where the book was going to go. It's a short book and I was thought, oh, we'll have some fun with it and we'll explain what happened. But then I w- I'm asking 19 uh, questions that men need to answer and think about and it comes to you know it comes down to that i think men are the only group i can think of who sort of embrace their stereotype their negative stereotype and sort of support it men are supporting the patriarchy which for most men is a negative thing most men suffer because of the patriarchy the people who succeed because of the patriarchy are the posh men who send everyone out to war and everything and yet men will vociferously defend it so i think it's just about having that conversation and nudging men towards the idea that equality means equality for everyone so if they're com- on international women's day they're complaining that men you know have more mental illness arguably or you know involved in wars or have a worse time in prison have worse education in some regards but if we have equality all that gets sorted out as well so mm-hmm. so men are very fearful of feminism and you know and I, in the book i talk about um whether it's just because it has femme at the start that they're worried that if they support it that that makes them seem less masculine um, i don't think but- so because racism doesn't have white at the beginning and white people are fucking terrified of that like so i don't think it is i don't think if we rebrand it as humanism or equalitarianism uh equalitarian establishmentism well i think we should, if we call them the equalizers they might go for it because that's you know that's it's based on one of my wife's comedy routines it's about renaming hoovering as mega carpet warfare and then men would be interested in it but <laughs> But yeah, but you know, I think there's a discussion to be had. So although um, I I really want to stop men just asking that question and just on that one day, they can ask it whenever else they want and they, you know, and go for it. The thing is also international days are not, that big a deal if you, when it, when you look into it every day oh, has yeah. something pancake day international yeah. there'll be international drinking straw day there'll be international everything there's everything there's a day for everything so men get very babyish and upset about not having google doodles and the un not recognizing international men's day it's sort of so babyish and pathetic that i think we need to address it the rest of the men who aren't like that these men make the rest of the men look bad Mm. And I think it's our duty to try and sort this mess out, I think, really, so, and, and to help each other. So as we discussed and when you were, you came to talk in my audio book of uh, The Problem With Men, so there's a lovely hour-long uh, chat with you. I think it was meant to be 20 it's, minutes, gang, but we no, got... No, no, it was, we, it was meant we to got, be an hour. And, uh, you know, it's not... Was it? <laughs> yeah, yes. The longer the better, because that's uh, more content. But it's not up to women to sort men out. But it, it, I think men... You know, it's a very simple message at the end of my book about there's very few things we need to do. And one of them is just if you hear a man say that on International Women's Day, just say, look, stop doing this today. It makes us all look bad. There is an International Men's Day. We actually get a month. We get Movember. Uh, If women find out about that, they're going to be furious when they find out. (laughs) (laughs) They only get a day or a week if they get a week now. So, you know, it's it's about, I think. If we did get a month, though, it would be about waxing. I don't know. I want it. (laughs) 
Yours would be about growing hair. Ours is always having it ripped off at the shaft with hot wax, molten yeah, hot wax. Yeah, you don't want a day. You don't want a month of that. I don't want a month of that. No, <laughs> you don't want a month of that. But um, uh, but yeah. So I think you know, there's lots of positives that come out of this, and I wouldn't say it's been enjoyable. It's been a sort of mini hell I've created for myself once a year. But uh, sitting down and writing them during the pandemic and realizing all the things about the pandemic and about this year that. You know, and, and Trump and Johnson and all these things, the toxic masculinity and the effect it's having on everyone is, you know, it's good to sort of pinpoint and work out just smiled escape ways. I, I think all of this is going to, it's it's moving things gradually bit by bit and, and hoping we move in the right direction. And, and you know, that's what my book, which is just mainly for a bit of fun, has turned into having quite a serious theme running through it. But it's... But I think we can probably make start to make a difference. If I could, all I want to do with the book is stop people asking that question on International Women's Listen, Day. But I still think people are achievable goals, and even we'll those can't be achieved, as it turns out. But it, you, yeah. you've done your best. Uh, have you accidentally been wise, Richard Herring? Is that what you're saying? You tried to be funny, and you accidentally were wise. Is this what I happens think in so. middle age? But it took me a long time because you know it took me a long time a to realise to think about it any more deeply than this is just funny to take the piss out of idiots making a bad joke. It took me ages to realise I could get people to sponsor me for doing, but I think by leaving it for ages, that's why we did so well with the sponsorship. So about six years in, I started asking people for donations to Refuge, and that sort of did very well, which that, again, made it very hard to stop doing. Uh, and mm. I think, you know, it was only in writing the book that I kind of managed to pinpoint all the real things I'd been thinking about. You know, I'd never thought of that. I'd never thought of that that point that, well, A, Movember is popular because it's a celebration of men it gets a little bit men go, oh, but International Men's Day doesn't get any publicity. You go, but Movember gets loads of publicity because men want to be involved with it. It's not a negative thing. It's not a, It's not in response. You know, women are welcome to join in with Movember in whichever way they choose to. And it's not an exclusive thing. And it's about coping with those things that you say you're worried about. But all these guys say, oh, what about mental health? What about suicide? But you don't see them doing anything on International Men's Day or any of the days for those <laughs> those issues that there are through the year as well. So it's it's a weird thing, and I do understand. It is a knee-jerk reaction. It's men fearing that uh, they're being challenged in some way. But if men are really that as confident as they claim to be about their lives, then they shouldn't be worried about competing on an equal level. You know, if they, you can only be upset about equality if you think it's actually going to impede you. If you believe in yourself then the idea, you know, for me, the idea of a level playing field in comedy is much more appealing. A, it's much nicer to have a variety of people around you rather than some white men who went to university like I did. And B, you know, it's you find out if you genuinely are any good at it, if the playing field is levelled as much as it can be. So, you know, I don't think men need to fear it. I think actually equality would help most men more than they realise. It's easy to blame certain groups for the way your life has turned out. And men often find it very easy to blame women. Women often find it easy to blame men as well. And often with more, <laughs> more to back it up. Sometimes but, more grounds, but yeah. more grounds. But, but, you know, but actually when you really think about it, that, that, you know, it's, it's not immigrants that's ruining this country. It's not women who are ruining men's lives. It's the people in charge of us who are generally posh men who are who are ruining the lives of those guys and if they could make that you know when i saw those guys at trafalgar square protesting against well they weren't even really sure what they were protesting against whether they're protecting churchill by doing nazi salutes or they wanted to fight someone but they they wasn't anyone to fight so they started fighting policemen i kind of almost felt sympathy for them because they were so lost about what their role was meant to be and what they were doing 
that they were just you know this ridiculous drunk rabble of confused men and and I think that's where a lot of men are and we need to try and help those men not be as confused and lost as they are and then yeah. the world will be better for all of us if we can if we can just make them see that equality is not this terrifying idea well i look forward to your night classes um <laughs> that men everywhere will be attending by zoom um <laughs> Please welcome to the microphone, Richard Herring. Woo! Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Oh wow, it's great to be in front of an audience again. <laughs> I was heckled by a dog the last time I was online doing a gig. It was great. Oh, well, uh, Grace has got a dog today. That's still there's a, a dog. dog here. So I'm looking. Yeah. I'm looking yeah. at a dog. Mm. And he, he <laughs> ate your stuff, Rich. To be honest, he told me that before we started. <laughs> Uh, chapter nine is there's 19 questions in this book this is the ninth question could i win a point if i played serena williams at tennis unless you're a professional tennis player or an exceptionally good amateur of county level or above the answer to this one is almost certainly no fucking way you deluded shit pipe how dare you even entertain the idea <laughs> but according to a YouGov poll 12 percent of british men who were asked do you think if you were playing your best, very best tennis, you could win a point off Serena Williams? Answered in the affirmative. One in eight men think they could nick a point off the player who has won more Grand Slams in the Open era than any other player, including one where she was eight weeks pregnant. Only if they were playing their very best tennis, though. They're not insane. <laughs> <laughs> you almost have to admire the confidence, you know, if it wasn't so utterly thoughtlessly ridiculous. A further 14% of men said they didn't know if they could do it. <laughs> Which implies they think it's a possibility. Maybe they had to answer don't know because they were unaware of who Serena Williams is or because they'd never played tennis so weren't sure how good they'd be at it. <laughs> or maybe they'd just lost their fucking minds like the 12% who thought they definitely could. That's one in four men who think they could definitely or could at least might possibly be able to win a point against Serena Williams. Not one in four men in their 20s who regularly exercise. One in four men, including people like me, Christopher Biggins, <laughs> the bloke who played Mr. Muscle in those adverts, and Prince Philip. I wonder, I wonder which one of us would win the point. That's four men. Math says one of us probably can. Have one in, have one in four men ever even picked up a tennis racket in the last 10 years? Have one in four men ever played tennis at any level? I'm including swing ball. I suspect that most of them are thinking, hey, in a tennis match, any player is bound to serve a double fault or hit a ball a bit too long occasionally. That's where I'd pick up a point. I'm not crazy. Sure, that happens quite often in two to three hour matches Serena plays against professional tennis players. But if she's playing me or the bloke who played Mr. Muscle, I reckon she could probably take a serve down from its 126 miles per hour maximum to maybe 68 miles per hour. <laughs> and I still wouldn't even see it as it whizzed past my head. Or if I'd been showing off before the match about how I could win a point, repeatedly and violently into my testicles. <laughs> You'd have to ask the bloke who played Mr. Muscle to find out if he thought he could do any better. I don't think she'd be very likely to double fault, even if she somehow contrived to make one single fault in the 48 points it would take her to beat me by two sets to love. It would only be because she'd been hit on the head with an anvil that had fallen from a passing helicopter. And maybe not even then. It wouldn't be advisable to rely on this eventuality. And it would look suspicious now I've written about it anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Especially if anyone checked my Amazon order history. But there, there are many reasons I could have bought that anvil. <laughs> oh, but look, what if I got my racket to one of her 24 serves and by luck it pinged off into a part of the court that she couldn't get to? That would probably work if she forgot how to move her legs. <laughs> Luckily for her, it would never happen. I wouldn't get a touch. If you don't believe me, check out the video made by at It's Black Culture on Twitter. It shows Serena hitting some, by her standards, pretty tame serves to three fairly fit young men who clearly believe they had a chance of returning them. They do not do well. Mm. They swing wildly at nothing when the ball has already passed them. One of them is told he's making men look bad and he whines, I know, she put some spin on it or something and it went further out here than I was ready for. <laughs> All three men line up to cover half the court in the hope of getting a return, but Serena still leaves them flailing and dumbfounded. There's one moment of triumph when one declares, I got a snick on it. I think he might have just hit the ground. Mm. I've watched a longer version of it actually since I wrote this and one time the, one of them does manage to kind of get it over the net and then she just immediately smashes it into the ground and defeats them. Another fellow goes down like he's been hit by a sniper when one of those gentle serves hits him in the leg. Mm. And that's not surprising, is it? It's going at maybe 50 miles per hour, like a snail compared to her regular serves, but like a rocket ship compared to yours. <laughs> I firmly believe that even with one hand tied behind her back, Serena could beat 99% of people on the planet. If you blindfolded her and spun around a few times, Times, maybe it'll go down to 98%. So are 12% of men overestimating their own abilities or underestimating Serena's? Or are they just assuming that because they're a man, they'd be capable of providing serious competition for a woman, even if that woman is Serena Williams? It'd be interesting to know if they thought they could take a point of Rafael Nadal or Andy Murray, but alas, they weren't asked about that. Only 3% of women thought they could win a point, with a still fairly high 10% claiming not to know. But that's one in 33 as opposed to one in eight, showing there are significantly fewer deluded women. Without knowing why these men thought they could triumph against Serena and whether they thought they could beat Nadal, it's hard to come to any firm conclusion. And just like with International Men's Day, it's fun to take the piss out of men with little self or general awareness. <laughs> this, this kind of insane overconfidence is often thought to give men an advantage when it comes to applying for jobs, because men are likely to overestimate their abilities and women to underestimate theirs. But the answer to this problem is not to encourage women to become as comically overconfident as men. We want fewer idiots in the world, not more. Perhaps we could need to encourage men to accept who they are and which skills they have and which they should delegate. If businesses and countries are run by men with an overinflated idea of their own abilities and who refuse to acknowledge their limitations or the strength of others, there can be serious consequences for us all. Um, so I go on to discuss the uh, reaction to COVID after that particular one, which I think is fairly uh, re relevant to uh, the, the, that a lot of the female-led countries treated it like a pandemic and a lot of the male-led countries treated it like a war. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very but much, Richard Herring. That's great. Um, I am looking forward to reading that whole very funny book. It seems like a real page turner and so many great jokes on every page. It sounds like it would make a great Christmas present for everyone in your family. It'd be an awesome Christmas present and for men and for women. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Wonderful book. Can you, the Richard? The Guilty Feminist. Uh <laughs> 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 Will you please welcome to the microphone the amazing Deborah Francis White? Woo! Woo! Okay. <clears throat> men, 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 <laughs> men. What even are men and why? 
Well, right now, on the day of this recording, the 6th of November 2020, in the year of our Lord, himself famously a man, <laughs> we await the results of the American competition for best man. A woman tried to enter the competition last time, but lots of people said they couldn't put their finger on what it was about her that made her feel not enough of a man for the job of best man. <laughs> they thought even the worst man in America would be a better man than the best woman. So they found the actual worst man in America <laughs> and gave him the job for four whole years until only just over half of Americans said, maybe we don't want the actual worst man in America to do the job. Let's choose again. Elizabeth Warren applied for the job. And although she was charming and clever and empathetic and didn't have any of the other issues that ruled Hillary Clinton out, was still decided by the nice, kind, inclusive, diverse, non-misogynistic half of the country, that she just wouldn't be as good at being best man as a man, seven years older than her, that sometimes looked as if he couldn't remember what he'd come into the room for. <laughs> we are still happy about that man, though, just in brackets. We will take what we can get. Sometimes a woman is allowed into important man rooms if she promises to play the man way and keep guard at the door to make sure no other woman comes in. This makes sense. If Amy Coney Barrett or Pretty Patel is in the man room where there's only room for one woman, she must guard the door very carefully because if she lets a woman in, she herself may be asked to leave the room to keep the ratio even. Look, all this sounds like I'm making fun of men, but that's because November the 11th, 2020, in the year of our Lord, himself a man who only allowed men to be in his gang and women the privilege of washing his feet. This day, this day is your special day. International Men's Day, and I know that taking the piss is how you men show your affection to each other. I love men. I do. Some of my favourite David Attenboroughs are straight white men. <laughs> Some of my favourite husbands are straight white men. I love your desire to tell me facts without context. I love your desire to watch other men run at each other with a ball for money and your belief that somehow you win when they do, even though you definitely don't, no matter what colour scarf you're wearing at the time. I love that you don't pick your football team based on which scarf colour goes best with your eyes. I love that you think you have to be brave to impress other men as much as women and that you keep your tears inside you like a camel hoarding them in case you get dehydrated. <laughs> and to you, I say, it's your day. So if you want to let some of those tears out and admit that you're sad and that sometimes life is spectacularly disappointing and that no one rigged it, you're just not the most popular best man anymore, then let it go. Let it go. Because not every feeling you're feeling is really anger. Some of the feelings are embarrassment and regret and sadness and self-loathing. You can let some of those feelings out other ways, like tears and talking. And if you do, it might be a relief for you and everyone. Men! <laughs> Thank you very much. Very good. But after all my hard work of doing this year in, year out, mm -hmm. you still said the International Men's Day was November the 11th, in that, and it's November the 19th. Oh, shit. Deborah. Did I? Oh, God. Yeah. I better I mean, do that again. Why have I wasted, why have I wasted <laughs> my time? You're thinking okay. of Remembrance Day, I think. Oh. <laughs> we don't, we don't do wear poppies for May. We're not oh, wearing poppies, poppies because of International Men's Day. <laughs> well, we sort of are because only they went to war no, it's, because it's we were pansies, allowed to stay back and do needlepoint. Hi.
Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. As you probably know, I'm sometimes asked to go to conferences and speak to people in business about things like diversity and inclusion, creativity, and how you can better include yourself and include others. During lockdown, I've been delivering these talks from home and now for the first time I'm making some of these ideas available to everyone. I'll be doing three live Skill Booster webinars over Zoom every Thursday at 2pm from the 12th to the 27th of November and you can get your tickets now. We've tried to make these as affordable as we can. If you've got a good job or you can get your company to pay for them, they're 60 quid each or all three for 150 if you're out of work or you're a student or an NHS worker, we have a small number available for just £10 each or £25 for all three. And if you support us on Patreon, you can get a special exclusive discount code there. For more information and to book, see the links in the show notes or on our website, guiltyfeminist.com. Our Be Well workshops are still running with amazing teachers running workshops on yoga, mindfulness and movement. Go to guiltyfeminist.com slash be hyphen well to book your place now. All the money goes to the teachers and the administrator. And lastly, our merch store is still open for business with all the Guilty Feminist mugs, t-shirts, notebooks and tote bags you could want. They all make excellent Christmas presents. And so does my book, The Guilty Feminist, available wherever books are sold. Thanks to everyone who's kept us going this year by supporting the podcast. Whether it's being a Patreon supporter, buying our merch, coming to our live shows or just being a listener and telling other people about the show. If you've rated, reviewed and subscribed, look, honestly, we couldn't keep doing it without you. So thank you very much indeed. And now back to the podcast. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Our guest today is the acclaimed author of the novels Coconut Unlimited, Meat Space, and The One Who Wrote Destiny. He is also the editor of the essay collection The Good Immigrant, where 21 British writers of colour discuss race and immigration in the UK. And his latest novel, Brown Baby, explores themes of racism, feminism, parenting, and our shifting ideas of home. Please welcome the incredible Nikesh Shukla! Uh, Nikesh Shukla, you are a man. Indeed, I am. Are we doing this like a Dr. Seuss poem? Yeah. <laughs> I am much. a man. Indeed, I am. <laughs> dad is sad. And sad I... dad had a bad day. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, go. I mean, continue on. You're on a roll. Um, <laughs> I read your book, Brown Baby. It's not out yet, but I got one of those special copies that you get if you do a show like The Guilty Feminist ahead of time. And I thought it was absolutely remarkable. It's like a contemporary memoir. It's a memoir of the time you're actually living now. And it's partly about raising two brown girls in uh, contemporary Brexity Britain and what that means. But there was so much vulnerability about your masculinity and about your place in the world that just really blew me away. And it's also very, very, very funny. I wondered if you would read a bit of it so everyone else had a bit of context before we talk. Yeah, sure. 
Okay, uh, so yeah, I'm going to read uh, from a section of the book that is called How to Tell You It's Time for Bed. Fucking hell, go to sleep. Because uh, each chapter is framed as like a, a question that I'm asking about being a parent. And this section is uh, is pretty much about like my friends who hadn't didn't have kids and their reactions to me having a kid. I was in London the day your mum, desperate for you to sleep so she could, started controlled crying a day early. I came to London to do an event about a project I'd worked on. The plan was to see a couple of friends for a quick drink after and then come home, tack on some normalcy, a pub, pints, bants, to a commitment I already had. And your mum said she was fine with me having a few pints because she, like I, was desperate to return to a degree of normalcy. And we should both be grabbing any opportunity for pub, pints, bants or whatever we needed. You sleeping was step one in a return to pub, pints and bants. I found the point super strange. I arrived 10 minutes late to find my two friends sitting in at a table in silence. Hey, I said as they both got up to greet me. I cuddled them both and sat down. I picked up the pint that had already been bought for me and sipped from it. I felt my phone buzz. It was a text from your mum. Giving up, it said. I'm starting controlled crying. Shit, I said. We're having sleep problems and we're about to start this super weird, super straight sleep routine to break her. My friends giggled. One slid a pound coin over to the other. They giggled some more and patted each other on the back. I bet him a pound you'd mention your baby in the first ten minutes. I said twenty, said my other friend. They laughed childlessly about my concern for your mum back home, dealing with your inability to lie flat by yourself while I went to a pub, drank pints, had bants. Now, my friend said, you're not allowed to talk about babies for the rest of the evening and we won't talk about football. Fuck these guys, I thought. What else do I have to talk about anymore? You came and changed absolutely everything. Now everything had conditions attached to it. Spontaneity had repercussions. Going to the pub instead of straight home had consequences. Having a job that takes me away a lot has an impact. I texted your mum. Wait till I get home. I'm leaving now. I figured, what was the point of staying? If I couldn't talk about the one thing I was capable of talking about and my friends couldn't feel the awkward silence that left by talking about football. At times of crisis, you get to see a vision of who you are and who you can be. I didn't act immediately. I waited for your mum to reply. At times of crisis, I wait for your mum to tell me what to do, it would seem. It took her 20 minutes to respond. She was probably dealing with you. It just said, OK, thanks. I didn't see the text come in immediately. I'd left my phone on the table and gone outside to smoke what would be my penultimate cigarette. I didn't enjoy a single drag, but not being around my friends was enough for that moment. They were supposed to be my closest friends and yet they had told me that the most important thing to me was boring. Not pub talk, not bants, not for pints time. I couldn't be here. I needed to be at home. Guys, I said, returning to the table. I'm going home. I'm needed. What the fuck, my friend said, standing up. Trust you to duck out when it's your round. Classic. I'm needed for reasons I've been told I can't talk about. They both made fun of me being passive aggressive, but it didn't matter. Suddenly, none of it mattered. I knew where I needed to be. I needed to be home. I noted as I rushed to the tube that since we'd left London, this was the first time I was thinking about home as somewhere else. These moments where you get to see in a quick flash that you've grown beyond something you love are often uneasy. So many films we love are about people trying to return to their sense of home and comfort. They start from a place of stasis. Maybe they're happy with their lot in life. Maybe they've accepted it. Maybe they have a flawed vision of who they want to be. Often it's different from who they need to be. Maybe they just haven't realised who they need to be. Maybe they think they are who they need to be. Often an external event will force them to go unwillingly on a journey. 
All they'll want to do is get back to that flawed vision of themselves and the comfort blanket this offers. But as they come up against obstacles and trying to return to their initial status and people who challenge their belief and their vision, they change and they learn and they try a new version of life. And they grow and they get closer to that version of them that is what, who they are meant to be. When they return, they return changed. Their version of themselves is now a dysfunction. It serves no purpose. They have grown beyond who they thought themselves to be. They are now who they were always meant to be. And this does not fit with the stasis we met them in. So nice, isn't it? How Hollywood and the classic hero man quest story of Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings and Napoleon Dynamite have drawn a neat little circle around that most universal of problems we all face. Be comfortable. Life disrupts your comfort. You realise that the comfort after a lot of trying and testing no longer fits. You need to grow. A baby is that external event hurtling towards Earth in the form of an alien invasion or a ring that needs to be chucked into a mountain or a terrorist hostage crisis in the White House or the fact that you're not even meant to be here today. You have changed everything. You are my trigger. I'm on a quest to become a better person. And in the Hollywood version of this film of ours, the moment I left the pub, the pints, the bants with my friends was a significant moment for me. In the movie version, Bradley Cooper, for in the movie version of a book about how to raise a brown baby, they'll find a way to center the white person story or just brown and fat and Bradley Cooper up for an Oscar winning performance. He'll slam his pint down and in a terrible English accent, tell his friends that they need to be more supportive of him, that he doesn't have time for their chat about their single lives, who they're shagging and the hilarious things they did when they were drunk. And he needs to be with his baby, goddammit. Then he'll storm out. He'll be in Leicester Square just to hammer home the fact that we're in London and Bradley Cooper is doing a London accent, mate. He'll take the central line from Leicester Square to Kensington, which is actually Notting Hill. Yes, I know this is an impossible tube journey. Tell that to the makers of Thor The Dark World where he'll be greeted at the door with his wife, played by whichever actress is young and blonde and hot and zeitgeisty and not yet 25 when this film gets made, and he'll take the baby off her, kiss her like it's their last kiss on this green earth, and slam the door saying, Honey, I'm home. In reality, I took the tube to Paddington, waited 30 minutes for the next train sloppily, and sadly comfort ate five tacos and drank two beers thinking about how awful that drink had been and what kind of apocalyptic scenes I was headed towards. I sat on a train for two hours, watched a terrible action comedy that I can't even now tell you what it was, drank three beers on the train, ate crisps, and waited for my friends to text me an apology. Thanks. Very nice. Thank you very much. I just wanted to give Rich also some context um, and Grace if she wanted to chip in. But I'm very interested in the two of you talking about being modern contemporary dads who are trying to be good men and understanding the history of uh menness rich you're raising a boy and a girl yes yeah and uh or a girl and a boy uh girls older either way around you can look at them either way around the girl was the oldest so yeah. <laughs> presumably they keep boy. shifting as children do running around a house they're not always in the same order that's the thing with small children <laughs> they do move about they move they the whole them. time it's very slippery slippery <laughs> thick people they are uh and Akesh, you're raising two girls i mean i just think i don't even know what kind of minefield this is now in terms of the desire for I suppose, contemporary liberal people to try and impose the gender binary less on your children, but also, you know, honour what they bring to you. And if your daughter does come home covered, you know, wants to wear pink dresses with rainbows and unicorns on them, not to kind of somehow make that uh, something that you disparage in your house, because what's wrong with it? It's only a colour and it's only a unicorn. It's not necessarily 
something to be disparaged because it is traditionally thought of as feminine. So how do you both, can you just talk to each other about this? Because I'm interested in hearing this conversation. Uh, I mean, Deb, you are saying this as someone who is not currently in a house that is covered in unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's a, it's a unicorn-free zone here. I don't have any children. I have cats, but they're not interested in unicorns. They've well, they've never they've never requested a unicorn. Uh, maybe they're pining for one, and they don't know how to tell me. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Richie, is your daughter very femme? In her not um, not overly. We but we've raised both of them, saying everything is for everyone. And my wife especially is very very hot on that. So the minute and once she started going to nursery and school, she would say, occasionally say this is for boys, and my wife would say no, everything's for everyone, or this is for girls, and everything's for everyone. So whatever we're doing, and I, we've allowed them both to be who they are. My son uh, got a an address for his birthday because my daughter has an Elsa dress so she likes dressing up in that sort of thing and he is very influenced by her uh, they both got the snowman costume as well but he wanted to have an Anna dress so he could play Frozen with his sister and he, you know, he's three so of course I mean even if he was 13 of course it would be okay but it's you know it's he's just saying that everything's all right he's so influenced by her that you know and so every he copies everything she does uh, and it's lovely because she's, on the whole, a very good big sister. So we've been, you know, a very loving big sister with occasional <laughs> lapses of pulling his hair when he's being annoying. So, yeah, we've just tried to let them be who they are. I mean, I found the the issue of my daughter is that she loves her mum and is very affectionate with her mum, but she's not physically affectionate with me. And the hardest thing I find about that, hardly ever, and I find it very hard, but obviously to respect, you have to respect that. And that, I wasn't anticipating that as a parent that you're, my son's very, very uh, physical and wants kissing and hugs all the time. Every time he leaves the room, he wants a hug. But my daughter, if I attempted to kiss her or attempted to hug her without her, her instigating it, which she doesn't do very often, uh, is, you know, that would be terrible. So that's the biggest challenge I've found. See, again, this is why I say cats are preferable because <laughs> you can just grab them. One of my favourite ever I'm a feminist butts was Grace Petrie's, where she said, I'm a feminist but I said the other day out loud to my cat, you have to let me hold you because I feed you. <laughs> one of my, uh, one of my, my absolute favourites. My cat doesn't like me either. So my dog likes me and my son likes My dog is a female dog, so that's something. My cat's a male cat and doesn't like me. Uh, my daughter, I think my daughter likes me, but she's very, you know, she's, uh, it's, she's, you know, she likes to, if she tells a joke, she's looking straight at me because she wants to know if I've laughed. So that's her language with Oh, me. that's the hug she from wants, you, is it? The, is that, that is the, the laugh if, from the comedian dad? If we're being funny together. And she does, <laughs> she will, you know, she's not, it's, it's just weird. It's, you, you would expect, and like, it's happened with my son that he, you know, he is, he'll obviously change and, and go back and forth. But I think that was, I think like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if I'd been a dad and my daughter didn't want to hug me, I'd have just said, hey, you come here and you've got to be hugged and this is normal and you've got to be hugged. But like now, I think correctly, it's just hard. It's harder as you as a dad to not have those moments of affection. When she gives it to my wife all the time, she's always hugging my wife. But uh, but yeah, she's you know she knows her own mind. I I sort of think they are what they are pretty quickly. I think with when she came out, she was pretty much this. You could sort of see in her face where she was going to be, and she was very confident. And you know, I think the personality is defined really. And I suppose all you can do is fuck it up really. So I think if, if you allow them to be who they are and wait, then they hopefully will turn out okay. But, you know, not... Uh, at the moment, she hasn't gone... No, she's not not girly, but she hasn't gone all down the pink route and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. She's still 
she still very much sticks to what she, you know, she thinks she can do everything. She thinks she won't accept help from anyone about anything. She's five years old. No, she wants to put her own ketchup on and pour her own glass of milk even if it goes on the floor. Drive herself um, to and, school. Yeah, <laughs> more. She would if she could. <laughs> she wants to drive the car, but her legs aren't long enough yet. Uh, well, don't tell. Don't I have that problem now, Richard. <laughs> don't tell her that. Don't point out her limitations. Don't, that's discouraging. Nikesh, how has manliness been redefined in your lifetime, either as a man or a parent? Do you feel it's shifted and that you've had to change with it? Is there anything that's difficult that you were raised to do that you now think, oh, I'm not meant to do that now? Is there anything that's hard? Yeah, I I think that there's a softness and a vulnerability that just wasn't acceptable in our house growing up. I was the eldest son of lots and lots of sisters and, um, you know, my dad was always at work and I kind of had to take on the mantle of being the guy and the, you know, the guy who kind of had lots of, lots of time was an opportunity was presented to me as the eldest and as, as a son. And the thing that I've noticed having kids is actually the ability to be soft and vulnerable and also admit to making mistakes has been really, really important because I grew up in a household where my parents would never admit to making mistakes. They would never admit to shouting at us because they were hungover or being grumpy because of some Nazi on Twitter was telling them to go home or what have you, or whatever reason I take out of my kids. But like the space to admit that I can make mistakes has been a really important thing to me because I don't want to present myself to my children as infallible because that way madness lies mm -hmm. as well. But generations of parents have done that, really. I don't remember yeah. my parents. It wasn't a thing that your parents apologised to you if they lost it, you know, and actually you did get the feeling it wasn't really about you. It wasn't a thing that I think happened very much in that generation. Is there anything, Rich, that you feel you've had to shift or change? Like you said, like if you'd had kids when you were younger, you may not have known about the like physical boundaries of consent when it comes to sort of, you know, this well-intentioned dad cuddle and kiss, but actually yeah. if they don't want it. They don't want it, you know, and yeah. are there any other ways in which you've had to change as a man or notice the world around you changing and you've had to kind of fit into that change? I don't I think we, not exactly. I mean, I think I'm lucky that to be a bit older and I'm glad that I've left it later to have kids because I think I'm sort of much more sorted in myself. And I'm sort of, you know, I think because I'm happy in my own skin now, which I wasn't in my 20s and 30s, I'm confident enough to be who I am as a man. And I've not really, but I, I never, you know, I, I always confused me that men were meant to be a certain way. And I didn't feel I was the way that men were supposed to be through my school days and my you know, being younger, because I'm not particularly aggressive. I'm not particularly practical. I'm not good at or interested in, you know, cars and all that sort of stuff that supposedly what a man is. Uh, and it confused me that, you know, men were, you who were good. You do play snooker against yourself, though, don't you? I am getting excellent at that. But that's, again, that's not particularly manly to play snooker against yourself on a six by three snooker table. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't that good. At, I wasn't good at sport and I wasn't good at that stuff. And, you know, at school, I remember thinking, why are the sporty kids allowed to show off and the, the clever kids aren't allowed to show off? Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that luckily I think things are changing and I think that's it's good for men. You know, it's good to be a for you to be who you are, you know, and be allowed to be sensitive and allowed that sensitivity to pass on to your kids. So, you know, my parents' generation and now probably all of our parents' generations, it was difficult for them. I think my mum and dad look at my sister when the way she raised her kids and she was more of a friend than a mother figure, you know, it was, she was treated them much more equally. And I think my mum regretted that they were much more strict with us and treated and had that parent-child relationship. 
So, um, yeah, you know, I think you've got to be careful that you're not letting your kids run amok and do exactly what they want. But I think also it's really important to let them express themselves and be who they are. I just find them, I mean, they're a delight uh, to me nearly all the time. <laughs> I have to say, I find them being funny, which is the problem, because if they're being bad, I'm not meant to be laughing. And, uh, but, you know, I, I want them, I want them both. I mean, you know, they are both really funny. And I think you just appreciate more as an older dad, you know, it's just sit and look at them in the morning and it's just sort of unbelievable. I don't understand where they came from or who they are. But it's nice. To, it's nice to have them here. Nikesh, if you could change one thing about being a man, one or two things about being a man in the way that men have been shaped by society, what things would you change for the next generation of men? I'd want to address the fixed position that men tend to operate from. I think so much of the, you know, the resistance that Richard is talking about in his book, and uh, so much of the kind of the resistance I find whenever I'm talking about issues around race is that, you know, and it is often, it is overwhelmingly men who I, you know, I, I catch the eye of, they operate from this fixed position and they have this certain lens through which they see the world and find it very different to appreciate that there are other lenses through which we can see things that, you know, Richard and I both are men, but we won't have seen the world through the same lens, you know, for many socioeconomic reasons, like, you know, I'm not white. Richard, didn't grow up in London. Uh, I grew up in London, you know, but there's an age difference as well. Sorry to bring it up, but I am 60 and, you know, it's going to be okay. Um, and, 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 you, and all these... you told me before you were a big fan of Richard when you were at school? Yeah, well, I would totally go on a fist of fun date with him. <laughs> <laughs> if, if that, if that auction my... happens... That's my I'm, problem. I'm that that is what I would ha I would have. <laughs> my days. Not that I, that's you necessarily would be, a cute You one. could do a lot worse than a Keshukla. <laughs> You'd be lucky to go on a date with Nikesh Shukla. Can I put? Can Charming I put and entertaining, that, handsome. Can I put that can, on the front of the book? You could do a lot. Deborah Cross is like the guilty feminist. Yeah, absolutely. And literally but, but anything yeah, that, I've said in this podcast, you can put in the front of your book. Yeah, I think that that Lawrence Fox question time thing is a really, really good example of this where, you know, he took umbrage with the fact that he was being called what he was. And that might mean that the way he views the world might be different from someone else's. And he's kind of, it would appear, has turned that into a very lucrative career. But that is the thing that I would want to change is that we don't all see the world the same and that's okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea of being a man or being a woman that, you know, that it's a, a very broad thing that we share certain things but we're very different you know all the way and i don't and i think men and women are more the same than we really admit i think a lot of men and women are pushing themselves towards the stereotypes in order to appear more masculine or feminine but a lot of people are trying to conform to a stereotype and i think you know we're all on a we're all on a many many spectrums and that's why it sort of feels weird when you weren't a particularly masculine man it felt like you know i still make jokes you know because i'm a man allegedly or no thanks for noticing you know, when you understand that it's just a broad definition based on, you know, gender and whatever, uh, and that you can be whoever you want, the world opens up. And I think that's, it should be liberating for everyone to realise they can be who they want and they don't have to conform. I think a lot of men just conform to what they're meant to be doing uh, in order to impress whoever that kind of alpha male is in their life. And, uh, you know, I think to be free from that and to be allowed to be who you are, which I think you get a bit with age uh, as a man because you're released a little bit from the sort of social constructs. It's very liberating. Can I just do the most manly thing at this point and reference an HBO box set 
That's why yeah. I'm illustrating, illustrating my point. But there's this thing that happens in The Sopranos that I think is really interesting where Tony Soprano is sort of really pushing up against the fact that he's in therapy and he's having to talk about when he gets too vulnerable, he starts talking about this idea of the strong, silent type. You know, like when he was growing up, that was sort of the pinnacle of masculinity was the strong, silent type. And I actually do think that that is the fixed position through which men sort of mm. assume a certain type of masculinity it is about bit strength and silence and stoicism. And actually the thing that I found is being the exact opposite of that with my kids makes for so much more of a fruitful relationship than I yeah. probably have had with my dad up until I was old enough to go to the pub with him and have conversations. Right. Do you think it's booze? Is that why men go to the pub so often? Because the booze <laughs> lowers the inhibitors and so that you can actually have a conversation that... I think it's so we can talk about HBO box sets. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, you know, we're all lucky in that we have jobs where we can express ourselves and, you know, I'm allowed to talk about my feelings and... And I, I just don't, you know, I think that's the issue. It's, you know, it is like you were saying earlier, Deborah, it's just, it's ground into men not to cry, not to express yourself, not to show weakness. I mean, this is where it trumps the sort of complete zenith of that approach and that, you know, you can't even then admit you've lost, you can't admit that uh, you've done anything wrong in your life. And that's not a liberating way to live. And I think, you know, that's why I think men probably do need a day that they actually... <laughs> That they actually, you know, talk to each other and discuss the things that bother them. Because the minute you do find that way in, which you do, through, I think through comedy you do a lot. Okay, with through when I did Talking Cock, you'd do it. You'd make a joke, and you know, and then so I, there was I wrote about it in in the current book. But a man came up to you know came back into the theatre after one show, and there's a bit about her damaging your penis in quite an unpleasant way. And he came up to me, and he's quite a big, tough guy, and he said, oh, he's looking for his cigarettes, but there were no cigarettes. He said, oh, uh, I thought I was the only one that had ever happened to. Thanks, mate, for doing it. You know, and it was literally just the relief of being able to mention this slightly, mildly embarrassing thing <laughs> that had happened to him, and just knowing he wasn't alone. And I just, that's why th that loneliness, that feeling that you can't express yourself, that feeling that everything rests on your shoulders, it's so erroneous anyway, and it's so ridiculous. So if we can encourage men to talk and encourage men to realise that they're, you know, they're allowed to have feelings and that crying isn't a bad thing, <laughs> then, you know, we'll, we'll be better in the future. But it's, it's getting through those generations and generations of men who've had that, you know, sometimes literally beaten into them that they can't, mm. that they can't cry or they can't say how they feel. And, you know, so it's, and that leads on to all the other issues that are a problem for all of us. So it's, you know, I, I feel we, we, as men, we have the responsibility to attempt to, make things better for each other. Completely. And I do, you know, there are things that I think, you know, where I talk in my book about the issues posed by men's rights activists, many of which are not, really don't stand up to any uh, rigour, but some do. I think like Women and Children First does stand up and like being able to kind of talk about the fact that men, if there's something dangerous, men are told to go and do it. You know, men are told to get out of the boat first and um, men are told to go and to the front line and, and fight inevitably, whoever's telling them to do it is a man. It is true that more men are killed by homicide than women, but 96% of all homicides are committed by men and the other 4% by women are usually in self-defence. In other words, if men stop killing, killing would stop. 
And that's yeah. that's a big old thing to realise. And I feel like if some of these emotions were processed in other ways that weren't anger and if different strategies were used, it would solve a lot of the world's problems, like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. What's the best thing about being a man? What do, what do you enjoy? No, what not? That's a bad question. What do you enjoy <laughs> about being a man? What do you enjoy? <laughs> What's being fun? We standing up. That's it. That's what we've got. It's brilliant. Uh, those, as you get older, that gets more difficult as well. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, there's, you know, it's there's there's loads of great things. I think it's just the great things about being a human being. I don't think there is any massive difference between the best things about being a man and best things about being a woman. The best things are just finding where, you know, because you can't even say being a father because not all men are fathers. You can't say... You know, we all have different experiences. So I think I, if you I can... See, I can see lots of things that I'd love. I'd love the way that what's projected upon you is that you're going to be good at something unless you prove that you're not good at it. So you don't have to prove that you could be a CEO or a president <laughs> or a this or that. You don't have to prove that. The assumption is you'll be good at leading. The assumption is you're going to be good at this kind of thing, that you'll be good with lots of money. Like, I mean, an individual might not be, but, but you see, I don't think that is. Out. It's not a male experience because that's not my experience, and I don't think it is. Though, <laughs> because actually, that, that can I just say that I was raised by social workers, and that is one hundred percent my experience. <laughs> that's fully how they brought me up to believe I should do everything <laughs> and anything. See, I think though, yeah. Rich, when you came into comedy, you were what a comedian looked like. Were you in the Oxford Review? I was in the Oxford Review. Yeah. yeah, like I auditioned for the Oxford Review and it was really difficult for women to get in because we just didn't look like comedians. Not to say I might not have got in anyway, but I know I walked in knowing that there'd only be one woman picked. And if I go into a, even now, into a, if I go into a regional comedy club, not that I can in a pandemic, but when I can, if I go into a regional comedy club, I'm kind of, now. I've seen it happen. Like, like in the last couple of years, people in the audience have, turn to each other in front of my face and gone, I don't find women funny. I don't like women comedians. Like I can see them saying it. So you mm -hmm. have to spend that first five minutes convincing them you're as good as the guys. So that projection, I think you don't realise, probably as I often don't realise as a white person, I'm becoming much more aware that certain things will be projected onto me. As a white woman, innocence is projected upon me. I believe white women, especially femme presenting white women to be the least criminalised group in the world. I truly, truly believe, we talked about this on your podcast, Rich, but um, mm. as part of your audiobook, if you get the audiobook, that there is no mule like a white woman who doesn't know she's carrying. Because <laughs> she won't look nervous, she doesn't know she's carrying, and white women are just ushered through. If I were found, honestly, at an airport with cocaine on me, and I went, oh my God, I got this bag at Oxfam, and I've got it off eBay, and I didn't, there was, it must have already been in there, and oh my God, and I started to cry, I'd probably be allowed to go. Whereas Nikesh over here, I reckon they wouldn't buy that for a second. Yeah. No, it's true. But, you know, but you don't, you're not aware of it. So it does, that doesn't feel like an advantage. But also, I think, you know, it, you or I also I'm look at other men I just and said think. It, though. I'm definitely aware of it because I just told you. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I, I wasn't aware of that being an issue when I was, you know, starting up. I, I guess it is now. But I also think in the last 10 years, the comedy scene, certainly the comedy scene that I'm involved with has changed enough that. 
the audience wouldn't be weirded out by you know several women on a bill, but definitely for most of the time I've been a comedian, that would be that what you, your experience has happened to me in the last couple of years. It, it, right. it depends where you are, obviously yeah, no, not. Definitely, definitely, you know. But definitely. if you came out onto the stage to do stand-up comedy at the Guilty Feminist, there would be people look at each other and go, "Oh, this is not what we've come for." Honestly, sure. And you yeah. win them round because you're a charmer, Richard. But <laughs> there would be a moment. There would be a moment. Nikesh, yeah. is there anything you love about being a man? I'm not a men's right activist, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know what? This is a terrible thing to admit, but the way my kids big me up for doing very basic household things (laughs) and don't notice when my partner is doing them, I do feel like a goddamn hero. Mm. Um, That's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) That's fascinating to me that they do that because you seem as present a parent as your wife. Which is, which is, you know, we note, we note it to them whenever they do notice it, mm. uh, whenever they, they do sort of give us, give me that kudos. And I, we don't understand where that's come from other than something that has been internalized. Probably Peppa and Pig. Yeah. The thing that I, I'm learning more and more as I get older and sort of, and I think this is something that I've noticed happening in lockdown, like, you know, being in one place and being in one place with a lot of my male friends in one place is kind of given us this space to have much more intimate relationships with each other in terms of how much we're sharing, whether it's on, you know, little zoom things or, or in WhatsApp groups and stuff. And one of the things that I've really, really appreciated is understanding that my discomfort does not trump anyone else's humanity. And I think so much of what, causes men to react angrily or causes them to react badly is this sort of deep fear of getting stuff wrong. And that discomfort for them feels like the worst thing in the world, which is why they kind of try and cover it up by, you know, leading with either aggression or anger or insults or bants or taking the piss and whatnot. And actually the ability to say something, get it wrong, sit in that discomfort learn from it and try and do better is actually one of the most powerful things in the world. And, and mm. it's something I've really appreciated. I've appreciated learning how to do more of that in the last few months. Amazing. Uh, is there anything either of you came to say that you didn't get to say about your book, <laughs> about manliness, uh, about anything? I've said everything in my book's called The Problem With Men and is, is available in all formats right now. Right now, <laughs> you can get it. And the best thing about being a man is being allowed to do the bins. And no one can stop you. No one can stop you. Uh, I'm very excited to read this book. It seems very funny. And if you get the audio book, you'll get a podcast with me and Rich banging on for another hour if you can tolerate it. Jesus, we've said enough. We've said too much. There's so much content now. There's too much content. No, seriously, buy the audiobook. But also buy the book book as well, because in a pandemic, none of us can do the proper jobs that we normally do. Uh, so it does support artists if you actually buy the book. Nikesh Shukla, anything else to say or promote or plug? Well, given it's that it's the American elections, the USA edition of The Good Immigrant came out in paperback a couple of weeks ago. So, Fantastic. And it's got four lovely different covers. So collect the set. Uh, and uh, Brown Baby is out in February, but a pre-order is uh, a very good thing Mandatory. for authors. Yeah, pre-order it. Mandatory. Pre-order it. Yeah, because I, I think you'll really like it. It really compelled me, and I read it almost in one sitting, and I kept texting Nikesh little bits that I found particularly poignant or funny. I laughed a lot, and I cried And it did make me think as well. Uh, It's all of the things you could ask of a book and a few more. Um, Brown Baby, pre-order now. 
Grace Petrie, man... Deborah Francis White. Man expert extraordinaire. <laughs> uh, can you please tell me, before you sing your song, what is it that you don't like about men? What's put you off them? <laughs> uh, um, what don't I like about men? They're, they're my competition for the ladies. Hey! <laughs> I'm joking. I'm just no, there. No the fucking competition whatsoever. A rhetorical um, joke. It was a. It was a. It was, was it? Yeah, it was, was it? a rhetorical joke. I wasn't okay. really asking. I was what about, you don't to, like I was about to, to, to direct your listeners to my extensive book titled "The Thing My Problems I've Got with Men." No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Available in all formats. No, I'm joking. Of course, I'm joking. What even um, are men by Grace Petrie? And what song are you going to sing today? Do you know what I think you should do? Because I want it to what? be a Christmas number one. Is I think you should do your lockdown song again, because it's really a hundred percent. Because at the moment everyone's having just—it's not out, you see. So everyone's just having to play the last bit of that podcast. So I would do that because I think it's going to be. Uh, we want it to be Christmas number one. That's our campaign. Uh, to, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so uh, this is a song about lockdown that we. I am begging Grace to sing again. <laughs> okay. Nikesh, have you been enjoying lockdown? I didn't love lockdown. Okay, well, you're in it again. This song <laughs> is going to see you through. Rich, this song, if you've been thinking, oh, fuck, how am we going to do this one? Yeah. Two small kids running around the house. This song is going to get you through. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's crikey. That's, thank you. That's very nice. It's so good. No man could um, have written it. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's the real title of my book. Um, uh, <laughs> For some sign, some little spark Of morning that will chase away the dark Heavy was the winter love And what's become of spring This demon came and got its claws In every little thing Now there are miles and glass and distance That are keeping me apart From the beating of your strong and steady heart And if it sinks my darling then Just fill your lungs And think of when When you'll be in my arms again There's a storm here to weather The thunder's coming near Louder than ever And we don't know where to steer And though we can't be together No matter what my dear I will love you we will dance again next year I will love you forever We will dance again next year This world is unfamiliar now It's turned us all around A sailboat in a hurricane And nothing's bolted down And whichever way you turn There is no sanctuary in sight No path to some in the night 
sailing right beside you I am just out of arm's length Willing you remember you are a rule of iron strength And I am hanging my tomorrows on the bones of yesterday All I can do to make it through today And when my heart sinks, my darling then I close my eyes and I think of when when you'll be in my arms again There's a storm here to weather The thunder's coming here Louder than ever And we don't know where to steer And though we can't be together No matter what, my dear I will love you forever And we will dance again next year I will love you forever And we will dance again next year When it does, I'll be there to fill your glass And there's a storm here to weather 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 The thunder's coming in Louder than ever And we don't know where to steer And though we can't be together No matter what, my dear I will love you forever And we will dance again next year I will love you forever And we will dance again next year I will love you forever And we will dance again next year I will love you forever we will dance again next year. Woo! Thank you very much. Yay. You have been listening to The Guilty Pandas with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Richard Herring, and our very special guest, Nick Keshukla, with music from Grace Petrie. The Guilty Pandas theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Solinsky for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Craftman, Gina DCO, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com! Taylor Swift one where did you, you sing. Get, did you get uh, okay? Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, cool. I did think of another one. We could. I have can't. Done. I can't listen to you while record at the same time, which is quite annoying. But um, no, no, no. Yeah, we, loved, uh, we loved it. Uh, we thank loved you. It. I really, I realised we could have done the the Taylor Swift one where you sing the um the song that she wrote uh, as a boy. <laughs> I could. Yeah, I could have done that one. Yeah, we well, we could have. We'll do it another time. I love that one. Maybe you know, we'll do it for I, so, so I did a I did a cover of this. So uh, Nick Ashton, uh, Rich, I. Uh, what most people know about me is that I have been planning for some years to end up married to Taylor Swift. And uh, and I did this cover on Instagram of one of her songs and it made the gay news. It made pink news. And there was a headline 
uh, that had a picture of Taylor Swift and a picture of me. And I just found out today, because I went to Google uh, the name of my first album, which begins with a T. And one of the first results, when you type in Grace Petrie T on Google, it's Grace Petrie Taylor Swift. So I'm claiming hey. closer towards my eventual goal of ending up married <laughs> to Taylor Swift. She hasn't yet commented on this cover, though. We need well, to you know sit. what? I'm playing the long game, Deb. <laughs> I'm playing a very, very long game. Like with Taylor we, Swift. Between us, must have a, li a, stra a link to Taylor Swift. It'll happen. You think so? Yeah. Well, she's like I'm twice as tall as me, literally. So just, uh, we've we've got some that's, obstacles work. ahead. Just mm. between us, um, I'm, I'm becoming new best friends with Harry Styles' sister. Um, so <laughs> wow. I reckon, yeah because she's making a podcast about doing good things in the world and she's asked me to be a guest on it. And I realised she's been following me for years. I didn't realise this. She's got 6 million followers on Instagram because she's Harry Styles' sister, but she seems like a good person. Um, yeah. So I'm going to do her podcast very soon. Obviously, I'll be hanging out with Harry Styles. And that means that's one step to t Taylor. Harry and Taylor must be like that, mustn't they? Got to be. Yeah. Got to be. Tom, are you waving at me? Can we do a picture? Can we do a picture? Oh, yes. Yeah, so we'll do a screenshot picture. So look into your webcam.